0: Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking to Dr. Rusty Muse about strategies for managing atopic dermatitis in dogs. Dr. Rusty Muse is a registered specialist in veterinary dermatology, working both in Perth in WA and California in America. He is an owner and the medical director of the Animal Dermatology Group, a collection of specialist dermatology clinics across the world. He is a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Dermatology, a member of the American Academy of Veterinary Dermatology, a member of the Dermatology Chapter of the Australian and New Zealand College of Veterinary Scientists, the Southern California Veterinary Medical Association and the Kentucky Veterinary Medical Association. He is also the secretary for the 9th World Congress of Veterinary Dermatology to be held in October 2020 in Sydney. Rusty owns three cats called Carl, Dieter and Hans. Hello, Rusty. Thank you so much for joining us on the Pure Animal Podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you. We've been trying to tee this up for um, nearly a year, which is a little bit crazy. Both of our schedules just um, haven't really allowed it. So it's very special to finally talk to you. How's, how's your day going?
1: Uh, it's, it's going really well, Sarah, and I'm, I'm happy to be here as well, finally. So yeah. this is the uh, end of my day here in California, the yeah. beginning of your day in Sydney,
0: but uh, yeah. no, it's, it's been a good day. Oh, good. And um, nearly nearly at the weekend for both of us, so it's always a good time almost, of the week. <laughs> almost,
1: almost there. Always
0: almost there. Um, well, Rusty, I have shared with um, our listeners a little bit about your background um, and what you're currently up to, but I was wondering um, if you would be able to share sort of from your point of view. How you actually wanted, how you came into veterinary science, why you wanted to be a vet, um, and particularly where your interest in dermatology was sparked.
1: Sure. You you know, Sarah, I wanted to be a veterinarian since I was six or seven years old. I've I've really been fascinated with animals and really my parents said anything to do with dogs or cats or really almost any animals really attracted me. Um, Apparently, when she would go to the grocery store when I was a child, she couldn't go down the dog food aisle because there were pictures of dogs on the dog food (laughs) bag. (laughs) <laughs> apparently, yeah. Apparently, I would sort of yell and cry for the dog food, and Mom was always afraid that she thought people would oh. think that they, she would me dog food. So, uh, <laughs> so I, I think I was sort of set up in life early on um, to be a veterinarian. I, you know, I, I started working for my local veterinarian. Um, in Kentucky, where I'm from, uh, cleaning cages, and and so that was really all all my goal. Yeah. I you know I went to college in Louisiana, veterinary school in the south as well at at, at Louisiana State University, mm-hmm. and my goal was really to be a, a general practicing veterinarian. That was always what I wanted to do, and and I did do that for four years in in Northern Virginia after I graduated. And I guess I sort of quickly found that, that GP practice wasn't kind of really what I wanted. Um, you know, I had good friends who were veterinarians; they just loved it, and they're still you know fantastic GP practice to practitioners. But it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. And I always liked dermatology in, in veterinary school. I had an amazing dermatologist at LSU. My name was Sandy Merchant, who made dermatology interesting and, and really vibrant for me. Mm-hmm. And so I began to pursue a residency position, which there were relatively few positions you know, 25 years ago. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, I was accepted to a position in California um, as a resident with a group that I'm actually now part owner of. Oh, and right. so that's really kind of what... Uh, why I kind of ended up where I'm at. Yeah. And, you know, dermatology to me was always just interesting and challenging. Every case is slightly different. And it, it almost every case is almost like a puzzle to me. And you take little bits of the history and the physical exam and you fit those pieces all together, uh, can try to determine really what, what needs to be done and what you need to do to manage those cases. Yeah. And I think lastly, I really like the fact that, you know, I deal with chronic disease. So you really develop relationships with patients and, clients, which I I also quite like.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a really nice way of looking at it.
1: Yeah, and you know, I've really been pretty passionate. I think since I've been in dermatology about trying to improve the lives of those patients, and you know, taking those animals that have been uncomfortable and, in some cases, miserable, and and you know, trying to trying to improve their lives, and and you know, trying to impart that passion to you know my residents and students really is still kind of what drives me to this day, to be honest.
0: Oh wow, gosh, they sound like really lucky residents and students to be working <coughs> underneath you, and going back to when you were at uni and you had um, is it Sandra. That you said was your
1: dermatology mm-hmm. lecture. Yeah. yeah,
0: Sandy, sorry. Um, it just makes such a difference when you have that one inspirational person to, I mean, she's really sort of set you on the path um, to lead to where you are today, just that one person. So, yeah, and you're, you're offering the same um, now to, to your students, which is just lovely.
1: Well, I, I, I hope that that's the case, but certainly, <laughs> Dr. It was just you know she was an amazing influence on, on my life there's no question that you know if I if I kind of think about one person who might be the most responsible for my path in life she you know would, would uh, is probably the one wow.
0: wow that's really nice and are you still in touch with her
1: Sure. She just retired um, from LSU a few years ago, and she's actually going uh, and working in a, a private dermatology referral practice in Houston for a few days a week. So she, I think, still has that drive as well to yeah. continue doing what she's doing, but in a different different format than what yeah. she's
0: done before. And you're owner and medical director of the Animal Derm- Dermatology Group, which does have um, clinics across the world, but there is one in Australia, in Perth. Can you tell us a little bit right. ab- more about about this group and um, sort of the, the main offerings that you guys have. Sure.
1: Well, you know, the animal dermatology group was was really started 35 years ago. I guess at this point by by two of my senior partners, um, Dr. Griffin and Rose and Rosencrantz. and. Um, they really were the first, really the first private practice dermatologist to, to try to bring referral-style uh, dermatology to the public, and really that was, that was offering it outside of the university uh, veterinary school structure. You know, it really started as a two-man organization. Um, several years down the road, they began to, to train residents, myself being one of the first, and uh, a couple of other people joined fairly early in the, the, the course. And we ultimately just sort of Grew um, by training other residents, and I think it was a kind of a good and fun place to work. I think we practiced really uh, good dermatology, and we enjoyed being around each other. And you know, after residents finished, they didn't want to leave, so we just had <laughs> to hire them and uh, kind of grow um, by extension. And and we did attract other dermatologists to our group who were kind of interested in being part of a larger group and and getting some of the benefits that come along with, with being in a larger group. And, you know, now we're we're kind of at, I don't know, I think like 25 dermatologists with eight residents and interns.
0: Wow. You know, we have
1: 10, I think, full-time practices around the country, mostly in California, but also in a few other states across the U.S. And we support about 25 or 30 satellite locations as well to try wow. to bring dermatology to sort of regional centers. And then I guess a few years ago, we sort of truly became international at that point uh, by joining with my long-term uh, friend and colleague, Dr. Mandy Burroughs, mm-hmm. who has um, been a dermatologist who really founded and has run had, had run her own practice in, in Perth for many years. And she decided to kind of join our group, and, and that was... Um, uh, a lot of fun having yeah. one of my best friends join our group. Yeah. And so, yeah, we have the two locations in Perth and we supply the Durham training to the students at, at Murdoch university. Yeah. And we also fly around to regional Western Australia to, to try to help bring the services to, to those populations. Wow. And, um, that's something that I've I've come and worked at the Perth practice pretty much every year for oh gosh ten years now and okay. I, I spend two or three of my months in Perth uh, pretty much every year so wow. I'm sort of a, a Australian by adoption yeah yeah uh, <laughs> uh, it's been uh, it's been great I I love I love Perth I love spending time there in fact I just bought an apartment a few years oh ago congratulations Perth, so be a real. A real thank you, thank you. So it was a real. Um, I'm kind of a, a real part time yeah, uh, a fish a,
0: yep. of Western Australia. making your I mean, I Yeah, yeah. And is there any plans to expand to the east coast of Australia or to other countries?
1: Um, well, we do have offices in, in New Zealand as well. Okay. Um, so we actually did start um, services in Auckland and, and also at Massey University. So we've been doing that um, for a while. And, you know, who knows? Well, I mean, the one thing I like about our group is they're always kind of up for a challenge. And if something looks like a fun thing to do and an opportunity, then, you know, we'll, we'll take it. So that's one thing I like about my partners is none of us have ever really been afraid to, to just sort of, you know, step up and do mm-hmm. things. And hopefully it works out. If it doesn't, well, we'll try Something different. Yeah, you know, it's it's been a lot of fun, and I enjoy the working with the people that I'm 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 in partnership with here.
0: Oh, that's great! Gosh, it sounds like a very happy life that you're leading, which is lovely.
1: <laughs> most of the time. Most, most of, the, of
0: time. the time, yeah. Happiness all the time is not really something that we should try and be achieving for. Rusty, so we've sort of touched on. I mean, we we've um you've told us about. Uh, your sort of drive to become a dermatologist, really inspired by Sandy, and the love that you have of um, of developing these relationships with your patients and clients over the long term, but what are your sort of main interests in the actual world of veterinary dermatology in terms of which cases really light you up and attract you? Um,
1: You know, I think as with most dermatologists, the the majority of the cases that we're going to see are dogs that have atopic dermatitis. and That is really, you know, probably, gosh, you know, 70% of the cases that we see in in all of our practices are going to be dogs with with atopic dermatitis. And that is an incredibly interesting challenge. I think, Um, you know, it's an area that has become really an area of lots of research with industry to try to provide additional, um, uh, additional uh, therapies that are options to be able to, t- to treat these dogs. And so that, in conjunction with bacterial pyoderma, which in many cases is really kind of part and parcel of, yeah. of dealing with atopic dermatitis, and, and especially now in the U.S., dealing with such resistant bacterial infections, mm-hmm. we see such tremendous amounts. Methicillin-resistant staff. Okay. I think you've had podcast about that before as yeah. well, and, and certainly, all methicillin-resistant staff isn't isn't quite as common in Australia as as it is in in the U.S. It's now become just it's it's really endemic and, and really a significant problem for us. So that certainly is the um, kind of the cases that I like, and those are the challenging ones. Those are the ones that are really chronic that you're constantly working with and trying to perfect and improve these patients' lives you know, little by little. And, mm. and those are the ones that I actually really enjoy mostly.
0: Yeah, right. You like the challenge. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It's 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 fun to be able to make little changes. And, you know, it's difficult because a lot of these cases take a lot of management and, and you know, you have to have really dedicated clients. Yeah. And that's absolutely. Important and, and, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times that can be a limiting factor on what people have time or the ability to do. And and if that's the case, sometimes it, we end up having to kind of go to Plan B and Plan C.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, they're so key, aren't they? The the clients and the dog owners, because um, really, sure. I mean, they're doing the bulk of the work at home. They're they're the ones that are sure. doing the day to day treatments. I can, yeah.
1: Yeah, I can set up the best plan in the world, but if it's something that people can't follow or, or, or not going to be able to do. It's not going to be very yeah. successful.
0: And so, okay, well, I guess then with the focus of this podcast being atopic dermatitis, wh- what is your sort of approach? Um, we can go on many tangents here, but if you're seeing a case for the first time of a dog with atopic dermatitis, what is your approach to um, diagnostics and then particularly looking at sort of short and long-term management of the condition? Mm.
1: Yeah, that's, you know, that's really the thing. I mean, you you know, one, you have to establish a diagnosis and that's, that's really important. And that, that's, done by really you know ruling out all the other um, primary differentials that, that you 've got, and then once you really reach that uh, diagnosis of, of atopic dermatitis, which is really done based on you know history and physical exam and, and response to therapy, um, and then ultimately utilizing tools like intradermal allergy testing or even serology testing to try to confirm some of those things, you know once you 've reached that diagnosis then you know, in trying to sort of understand atopic dermatitis, and it really is important to understand the pathomechanism of it. As boring as that sounds, mm-hmm. um, to kind of know where a lot of therapies are really being targeted, and I, I, I do my best to try to try to educate my clients, because I think the more they know, and the more they um, kind of are able to understand, then. Mm-hmm. Better better they're going to be able to really follow through. Yeah. But, you know, essentially with atopic dermatitis, I mean, you're really dealing with two defects. You're dealing with an abnormal immune response mm-hmm. and you're dealing with Really, a defective barrier function, yeah. and you know the abnormal immune response um, ultimately is what starts that whole cascade of events that revolts, results in an inflammatory uh, process, and, mm-hmm. and really the paritis that's associated with that. And dogs get exposed to whatever allergen uh, that they're allergic to, you know, whether it's environmental house dust mites, you know, grasses, yeah. weeds, trees. Yeah, and ultimately that starts that cascade of events that makes them itchy. But then the other problem is, is they have an abnormal barrier function, which allows for better and, and more easy penetration of organisms or you know even the pollens that they're yeah. allergic to, and that sort of even worsens things. So it's really you have to deal with both of those things, and that's kind of the first thing that I usually tell people. Yeah. You know that. Abnormal immune response is, you know, really to to try to find a a way to manage that. I I try to think about it in terms of I need a short term fix and I need a long term fix. Yeah. Okay. My long term fix in almost all cases is going to be immunotherapy. You know, yeah. That's really there's no substitute for that. There's no. Really, there's no other therapy that has the ability to put atopic dermatitis into long-term remission or even potentially cure, Um, but you've got to change their immune response. And by giving small amounts of the dilute substances that they're allergic to, which is what immunotherapy Mm -hmm. is, you can hopefully alter their immune response. And you know that can be done either by subcutaneous immunotherapy, which are the standard allergy injections that have been done for a long time, or even done by sublingual, which is a... An approach that's actually become becoming more and more popular with veterinary dermatologists. It's been done in human dermatology and allergy for a long time, Um, and so providing the 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 body with those types of allergens to try to alter their immune response to those is really important. And you know, subcutaneous immunotherapy and sublingual things are are things that you know general practitioners can certainly do. Mm -hmm. But what I will tell you. But that's actually, to me, that that's almost really where the art of veterinary dermatology comes in, because yeah. that really does take takes a lot of practice, experience, and time. And, and it's because we often manipulate those, and the more experience that you get doing it, the better off you'll be. So it's one of those things that, you know, if you have general practitioners that are interested in getting involved in, um, you know, immunotherapy, great. I mean, it's it's a great thing to do, but you definitely have to do it and, and get experience. And, you know call your local friendly dermatologist for help. Too. Yeah. And, you know, you know that, yeah. cause there's so many things that go into that. And so that's, that's your long-term fix, and that's great, but yeah. you need a short-term. Yeah. And, you know, there's tons of things because you can't just sort of send a dog out and say, you know, here's your immunotherapy, come back in a year, good luck. Um, you know, we need something in the short
0: term to, really, to manage that. But yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly. And that's where things like, you know, historically corticosteroids um certainly are helpful. They mm-hmm. have their disadvantages. They're they're helpful. You know, cyclosporin has been around for a long time. Um, you know, antihistamines are kind of have relatively minimal response in in most um evidence-based studies that have looked at that. Um, but they can be helpful in the occasional case. And then a, a lot of the new therapies, you know, nib, which is available in, in Australia, as well as mm-hmm. the Lokivetmab injections, which are sort of targeting, you know, IL-31, which is a, a major contributor to pruritus. They do great at stopping the itch. So those are great short-term therapies, and mm-hmm. I don't care how we make that dog comfortable in the short term. We just yeah. have to be able to control him while we're trying to, to do some of those other things as well. Yeah. So... I, that's, that's kind of the way I often will, will start in, in sort of trying to educate my clients. Like You know, look, I need, I need a long-term and a short-term therapy. And it's really a combination of both of those things that we have to, um, to manage to, to try to uh, get our best control. Yeah. And that's, that's the first part because I mean, then the second part really comes down to sort of that whole barrier function. Mm. And I think you've had podcasts before about yeah. the importance. Of barrier function as well. Yes, we have. You know yeah. that's you know and that's definitely something and you know when we talk about that you know I usually try to you know tell my clients look the, you know the barrier function is is really all of those great ceramides and fatty acids and cholesterol that are on the surface of the skin that keep all the bad stuff out and keep all the good stuff in yeah. and, you know all the good stuff is water because that keeps our skin really hydrated and 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 and, and just in in good shape and all the bad stuff is all the normal resident bacteria and yeast that live there but. You know, in dogs who are atopic, you know, they have that defective barrier function, and they're either you know, some controversy about whether they're born with it or whether they develop it. Um, mm. But once they Maybe have that defective barrier function, yeah, well, exactly. And then you end up um, having to deal with infection, and that can be with oral and topical antibiotics. And you also have to use something to try to try to repair that barrier function as well.
0: Yeah, right. And so, in your opinion, Rusty. You've talked about the defective immune response and the defective skin barrier. To have atopic dermatitis, does a dog have to have both of those things? Or if a dog has just a defective skin barrier but its immune response is fairly normal, will it still have some sort of skin condition that can look like atopic dermatitis?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question because, I, you know, I think probably. Um, all dogs who have atopic dermatitis probably do have both, but mm-hmm. sometime, sometimes one is more apparent than the other. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you have plenty of dogs that come in that are an incredibly pruritic and scratch and scratch and scratch, but they don't tend to have lots of uh, infections. Yeah. So you definitely see dogs that fall into that category where they're just itchy and their skin, is. they just get lots of excoriations and trauma. But realistically, as far as you know, pyoderma, they really don't exhibit it. And then you can also have dogs who are kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, and especially, I think, young dogs. Sometimes what happens is young dogs start with developing folliculitis and pyoderma, and they're not incredibly itchy at the mm-hmm. at the beginning, mm-hmm. um, but they're probably exhibiting more of those defects of barrier function, so they're getting bacterial infections. And if you follow those dogs along, ultimately, you start to see them get more pruritic. They start licking their paws, rubbing their yeah, face. Yeah, right. Do- exhibiting all the classic uh, atopic signs that we think about in, in regards to pruritus. Um, and, you know, that's one of those questions I, I often ask people when they, you know, when I see cases that are, come in and the dogs are three or four or five years of age is, you know, did the dog start having just recurrent folliculitis? that we get better on antibiotics and then relapse over mm-hmm. a period of time. And yeah. then a lot of times that is definitely something that's there.
0: Yeah, right. Okay. It's sort of one of those chicken and egg scenarios, isn't it? Did the skin barrier defect come first or did the immune defect come first? And I guess you never really know.
1: And I think, yeah, and I think a lot of times it's just variable and everybody's a little bit different. They both, you know, the majority of dogs, if you follow them long enough, I think most dogs end up exhibiting sort of the classic pruritus that we think about with atopic dermatitis. And then as time goes on, they end up starting to get um, no, cutaneous changes enough to where they get defective enough barrier and, and dry, scaly skin that they then are getting infections pretty routinely.
0: Yeah. It actually is really clear the way that you've been describing it because it is quite a complex topic. Atopic dermatitis, um, and certainly with all of the different, um, you know, immune cells and and inflammatory mediators and things that are involved, it can be quite confusing for people, I think. Um, So, thank you Um. for explaining it so nice and simply.
1: Well, I think I've just hit the highlights,
0: (laughs) Yeah, you haven't got into it, (laughs) into the (laughs) nitty-gritty. Yeah. Okay, so in terms of – can we talk a little bit more about your approach to skin barrier function? Um, You did mention, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the the ceramides, cholesterol, fatty acids, and they're important Mm -hmm. parts of the skin barrier itself, but um, obviously – it is, would be more of a long term management goal to replenish that skin barrier. What are your approaches to that?
1: Well, you know the 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 whole management of the you know the skin barrier, and I, I think it, it again that also kind of has two parts. It's you know dealing with the the end result, which is the infection that's there, and that's where things like you know like I said oral and, and topical antimicrobials, and I, I guess that's one thing I, w- I would always you know put in a plug for topical antimicrobial therapy. You know, especially in this era of of you know I think what we're trying to have better antimicrobial stewardship and you yes. know, top- topical therapy. Is, is really important um, for not only in the, in the beginning of, of developing uh, control of a lot of the infections, but also in managing those dogs uh, down the road. You know, chlorhexidine, there are multiple different antimicrobials, but certainly chlorhexidine is, is I think, used pretty universally to treat bacterial infections. and very effective. I mean, it generally comes between 2 and 4%. And I, in many cases, yeah, I mean, there are lots of dogs that come in who have active pyoderma and any more, I, a lot of these dogs, I will just send them home on topical therapy, and I, I may have them bathe the dog every single day for mm-hmm. the next seven to ten days, yeah. and that in almost all cases will resolve pyoderma. And then you kind of ease into a maintenance plan after that, um, because even the methicillin-resistant staff is is quite uh, sensitive to chlorhexidine in, in most cases. Yeah. So you know that's kind of the first thing that that we do. And you know, practicing in, in California, I think there are a lot of people who who definitely are you know wanting to limit their exposure. To antibiotics, and I'm certainly in support of. So that's part of it. But then, if we come to the kind of the the other barrier function that you talked about. You know, that has become a, a really trendy topic for a lot of industry as well. There are a lot of products on the market that now to contain uh, levels of things like ceramides and, and phytosphingosine. Yeah. Um, we have a number of those products in the U.S. and actually getting some of them more and more in Australia as well. Yeah. Um, and those 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 topical products can be very helpful about um, normalizing the barrier function and, and hopefully improving the, the um, functionality of it. And, you know, the the kind of the, the big acid that we think about is linoleic acid is, yes. is one of the important um, uh, products that, that are, it's very helpful. So using supplements that contain linoleic acid, that's actually quite helpful. And in fact, there are a lot of Common oils that people use, and and we do use those from time to time, Um, things like safflower oil or evening primrose oil, sunflower, or even corn oil, they all contain very high levels of of linoleic acid, and those can be quite helpful. So if you're looking to sort of supplement diets, um, then those are kind of the oils that you can certainly can be helpful um, to use. You know, I know evening primrose oil is one that we've been using in our practice in in Perth for a long time. Um, Yeah. And uh, that that I think is quite helpful, um, but those supplements are great. And I, I guess the other thing I would say is, you know, the the, the standard and the really trendy coconut oil, which everyone likes to yeah. use, um, which certainly can have some benefits in some things. It only has two percent linoleic acid, yeah, so okay. it's not actually something that's particularly helpful for uh, barrier function. Although right. it may be, it may have other benefits, but yeah. but for pure barrier function, it's not probably one of my go-tos on, yeah. on that for sure. Okay, and if you can. Improve improve the barrier function then, you know, you try to help decrease the that transepidermal water loss and also decrease the access to the allergens and and bacteria and yeast that live there.
0: Yeah, right. So it's a it's a completely crucial part of of, um, I, I think
1: treatment. we're recognizing more and more how important it mm. actually is, and yeah. you know that's you know that barrier function. I think you know when I was in veterinary school, and and probably a lot of the listeners, you know, we were taught that atopic dermatitis was allergic inhalant dermatitis. So for mm. some reason we. Sort of thought we inhaled pollens and then you know those that inflammatory response somehow got into your skin and then that created itching but nobody I think was really confident how that actually happened but nobody questioned it and uh, <laughs> and now we kind of know that uh, that's probably not right although to be fair with everything that changes you know there's probably a whole bunch of things that we're going to talk about today that will be proven wrong down the road so yeah, we'll, that's uh, right
0: That's the beauty of now, research. What we think. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can only do um, what we can do with the information that we have at the time, right? <laughs> exactly.
1: exactly.
0: Um, something that's just sort of popped up in my head, and I guess it's something I've thought about before. The linoleic acid obviously is an omega-6 fatty acid. It's known as a pro-inflammatory fatty acid in a lot of cases, mm. Um when it's ingested, um, particularly for, you know, in human sort of nutrition, talking about vegetable Mm -hmm. oils and things like that. So do you find that if you're using something like um, perhaps not evening primrose oil but something like sunflower oil or one of those um, vegetable oils, do you find that it actually does have um, a pro-inflammatory effect on the skin or does it tend to spare the skin? And if so, do you put in omega-3 fatty acid with it to counteract that.
1: Yeah, you know, it has the potential to create an inflammatory response. There's no question about that. Um, It may be dose dependent. It may be individual dependent. And that's why a lot of people, and to be frank, myself included, we tend to use more topical omega 6s. When we use oral omega 3s because they're anti inflammatory, we often tend to be kind of prefer um, topical omega 6s
0: um,
1: because of that potential response. So, yeah, Yeah. I'm completely on board with. With that, I think in in practicality, do we see it or do we recognize that that often the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think anything we can do to lessen even relatively small amounts of inflammation in an atopic dog may be important.
0: Yeah, it's it's just something that I've sort of thought about over time because. If you follow uh, perhaps not the standard dietary guidelines, which do promote the use mm-hmm. of vegetable oils, but certainly um, if you follow some of the a little more alternative nutrition guys out there, mm-hmm. um, they're very, very poo-pooing of using, of ingesting any sort of omega-6 mm-hmm. fatty acid. And, and I and always think about that with the atopic dermatitis.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that has actually – we've negated a lot of our use of those because of all of the really great uh, topical products that yeah. so many companies come out with. We've we've actually gotten access to really a number of those ceramide and phytosphingosine containing products in, yeah. in in the U.S. And, and also even in Australia now too.
0: Yeah. Um, something else that I had a question about going back to immunotherapy, this is just for my interest um, and probably other people's yeah. interests that are listening. I, I have, when I was in practice, I, I definitely referred cases to a dermatologist to um, undergo immunotherapy and, um, and to go down that path of treatment, um, those who were not responsive to a simpler management plan. With immunotherapy... Is, I, I know that you do the um, the allergy testing to start with and then you determine um, the sort of the main allergens that the dog may be sensitive to and you develop the vaccine. Is that something that you develop in-house? That would be the first part of the question. And then the second part of the question is, do you actually review the sensitivities like every year or do the, do you find the sensitivities change? And then you did say that you sort of have to tweak the vaccine sometimes. Just Just something that sort of popped up.
1: Oh gosh! Okay, well that's a that's <laughs> a two hour podcast uh, <laughs> to talk about those topics. Um, yeah, and I, 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 there's lots of um, lots of tweaks that that. Go into it. Certainly, we do the allergy test. Um, Most dermatologists, and I I think we make our own allergens. We usually carry a full set of allergens, so we make our own allergens up. And there's some standard dosing and what are called PNU or protein nitrogen unit concentrations that most people use. I think most people use about 20,000 PNUs per mil. Mm -hmm. And you put in, you know, anywhere from 10 to 15 different allergens depending on what the dog actually. Reacts to um, and you know start yeah I mean you can do that many some people actually put more you know but the question is really what is the correct dose of each allergen the more allergens you put in the the more dilute each of the individual allergens are and nobody really knows exactly what the correct dosage is, what the correct frequency is. It's, it's definitely one of the, probably the more voodoo things that, yeah. that's actually done. Because we know it works, but we don't always know exactly how the best way to get it to work is. Um, I think we generally see pretty good success. You know, the general kind of number that's quoted is, you know, 60 to 70% of dogs have good um, to excellent responses. And I think that's probably about right. Yeah. Um, if you get a dog that responds, then you you know you continue to do things and you don't necessarily revisit it there's no reason to do that if they're doing well. but if you get a dog that doesn't respond, then you definitely can you know, reformulate the allergens sometimes we'll look at the history, see if there's a certain season that the dog's more pruritic in or if we need to um, alter concentrations of any of the allergens we can do so I think the one other thing too that I might sort of throw in is. I think historically, veterinary dermatologists have been too quick to give up on allergy immunotherapy. I, I know when I was being trained, I, I was told that you know if dogs don't respond within a year, then they're probably not going to. Okay. And I'm not so sure if that's the case. Um, you know, the average response time for people, when they put people on immunotherapy, it's usually for a minimum of three years. They're going to say, look, you're going to do it for three years and, and we see how you, how you go. Yeah. And to be honest, I, I kind of do that now. I tell yeah. people when we start, you know, I, I know it's sometimes hard to continue doing things that we don't think we're seeing any evidence of improvement, but I do my best to keep um, uh, keep doing it because I think we probably have done a disservice to a lot of dogs that we've taken them off way too early, um, and and if we just keep plugging away, we we might get much better response in some of those dogs. Yeah. So it's a it's an area that you know I wish I could give you more hard and fast information. <laughs> no, that's but is, fine. It, and that's why I say it. It really it does take. Kind of experience and 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 time to yeah. you know get comfortable and to kind of know what to do. So it yeah. isn't it isn't one of those things that has a um, you know when you get that schedule if you're doing a uh, allergy vaccine and and you get the schedule from the company and they kind of say you know this is the schedule you follow. You have to understand that many times you're you're going to need to change that schedule.
0: Yeah, it sounds like more of an art than a science.
1: Mm, that's it. We <laughs> hope that it's a little bit of, but uh, yeah.
0: Okay, well, that's really interesting. And how do you see, I I mean, I know there's always new research being done and and new um, therapies being developed. And how do you see the world of veterinary dermatology changing in the future?
1: yeah you know there there have been so many new tools that that we have that um you know really uh, you know clients are demanding you know better better care better service for their pets and that's great and and i think industry really has responded to that and um they recognize the importance of really safe and and effective therapies and i think they're always looking for the kind of next novel technology that's going to that's going to be helpful and i'm certainly no Prognosticator, but you know there are there are things that I think are in the in the the works and, and things that um, are definitely going to be uh, available, hopefully in the near future. And I think one of those is um, breakthroughs for cats. You know, we have yeah. relatively. Um, You know, cats haven't had a lot of the breakthroughs that dogs have. A lot of the therapies that we now have for for dogs are not effective or not used in cats. And I think we have a dire need for, you know, as a cat fan, believe me, I've got three (laughs) cats and and I am all about cats and, and we definitely um, need better therapies for those. We can still do immunotherapy in cats. They, they respond quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, even things like asthmatic conditions, we, we do lots of uh, intradermal allergy testing and, all right. and immunotherapy okay. with asthma and yep. they respond well. So it's a good therapy for the cats. But I think there are definitely going to be new things that are going to be targeted for that. And, you know, I think certainly things like different gene therapies and and technologies that we see in human medicine. We're we're going to have those in veterinary medicine, I think, sooner than later. And so, you know, that's going to probably render a lot of diseases that we deal with. You know, maybe irrelevant in in some cases, and that would that would certainly be great. Yeah. Um, and you know, I I think you know the other thing is just lots of new topical therapies that are really directed toward the uh, bacterial or antimicrobial effects just with the the progression and and uh, problems that we have with with all the resistance. Yes. I think there are a lot of new things that I'm hopeful will be really helpful for us because right now we have, you know, we have various topical therapies, but, um, you know, I'm afraid, you know, how long is it going to be before we're going to have a resistance to chlorhexidine? That yes. that has been noted. Now we do know that that's, that's something that that can happen and so you know trying to stay on, on top of or ahead of the ahead of the game really with resistance is is a is a big issue.
0: Yeah, well it's great that the veterinary world is taking charge of it because it's certainly a major issue worldwide in human and animal um, mm, medicine. Absolutely. And I do feel like we are sort of pioneering that which is excellent. Um, The word is definitely getting out there that the vets are leading the charge in a lot of ways um, with antibiotic use. Rusty, so we've talked about fatty acid supplementation. Um, Is there any other sort of natural therapies or um, nutritional therapies that you utilise in your practice? Do you focus much on diet and nutrition or do do you use any other sort of supplements or anything like that?
1: Um, you know, as far as true supplements, I, I, I mean, we don't have a lot that we do use. I mean, I've actually been really interested in, in the effects of things like probiotics um, yes. used in dogs. And, you know, and while, it, you know, if, if we think that immunotherapy is really a little bit of uh, uh, guesswork, I think, unfortunately, probiotics sort of fall into that category, too, because they certainly may have a role. But, you know, in this limited studies that have been looked at from really evidence-based medicine, there just there hasn't really been a, enough good results to, to really be able to give much advice and, you know, specifically what probiotic or, or dose or frequency mm. to use. Yeah. And so I do think that that's something that um I think in the future that will be something that that may be uh, helpful but right now we just don't know enough about it to be able to give you give really good Recommendations or yeah. advice. We have been using them in, in our practice, but again, I think it's too early to, to really be able to tell uh, if there's going to be much benefit in, in various diseases with those.
0: Yeah. Well, there's-
1: um, you know, a lot of the other topical things like, you know, oatmeal um, certainly has a, you know, certainly have a role to play in, in controlling paritis. You know, we already talked about the topical fatty acids and and ceramides that, that can be helpful. Um, but a lot of those things are very useful in cases that are really mild to moderate, and which that's great. And sort of in general practice settings, those can be helpful. Um, a lot of cases that get referred into veterinary dermatology, however, are sometimes uh, a little bit more difficult to yeah, manage. And, those aren't as-
0: um, and in terms of diet and food, obviously food allergies is another sort of big topic, which we, we don't have to go too far into. But do you feel that diet has a big impact on the health of the skin? Um, and do you feel that food sensitivities can sort of cross over to atopic dermatitis and, and um, play a role there?
1: Mm, yeah, boy, another, another podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, um, yeah, it definitely does. I mean, you know, there are foods and there are diets that we have available in the U.S. that do have uh, omega-6 fatty acids in them. And and we do use those for dogs with atopic dermatitis who don't have food allergies per se, but are just atopic. Mm -hmm. Um, So those can be quite helpful. We know that in people, there's a lot of crossover between um, food allergens and and various pollens. you know, grasses, trees, weeds, things like that. Um, and those have in, in humans been somewhat reasonably well worked out. And that's there's been almost no work that anyone has ever looked to be able to determine if that's the same in dogs. But I have a sneaky suspicion that that probably is the case. Yeah, right. So okay. it, it definitely does does play a role.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Sounds like there's lots of different research opportunities. Do you ever get involved in research yourself?
1: You know, we do clinical research. We have an active residency program, so we definitely have a a lot of clinical research. But you know, at the end of the day, um, I'm I'm a clinician, so that's. joy. And that's, that's kind of what I I
0: do. Yeah, absolutely. And just one more question. Obviously we've touched on the importance of having the, the pet owner and client really on board. And, um, you know, you, you've stressed the importance of educating them and having them really understand, um, what is going on with the condition, but what are some sort of practical tips that you might have for us? on how to actually achieve this in real life and and obviously client adherence is so, so key to treatment success. So what do you sort of do? Do you write plans out? Um, are you sort of really um, on top of them with scheduling revisits? Um, what are some practical ways that you can share with us?
1: Yeah, I- all of those, and and what I would tell you, and I, I also tend to to push these to to veterinarians that I lecture to, um, and I think certainly with dermatology cases, that the three things that I think are probably most important to my attempts to try to get good adherence for clients is one, every single exam room in any practice that I go to has a big whiteboard on it. Mm-hmm. I draw things. I, I write everything on whiteboards. I draw arrows and numbers and designs and signals and everything on yeah. the back of the whiteboard. And just to try to, you know, we're all visual learners. I think we all, if we see things, um, we, we tend to retain it more. But, you know, I, I draw the whole scheme and the whole pathomechanism of atopic dermatitis. Oh, wow. I draw keratinous not allergens and, everything. <laughs> and it and and i think they sort of get into it i have people take photos of the whiteboard it makes it easier to to their partner when they have to go home and um kind of explain what we're doing so i am a huge fan of that first of all and i think that has really helped understand or help my clients understand um sort of what we're doing and why we're doing it and i think that helps we send out very detailed discharge instructions Mm -hmm. that's the second thing yeah Um, you know, m- most people, I think, are willing to do what we want them to do um if they just understand the importance and why they're doing it. so you know, I don't send out discharge instructions that you know have a number, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, because I think most people get through five and they say, "Okay, those are important, yeah. maybe six uh, eight, not as important, nine, ten not important at all, <laughs> well, they're all important. Yeah. So you know we divide it into sections. So you know, he, you know, antimicrobial therapy. This is what we're going to do. We're going to put you on an antibiotic. We're going to put you on a topical therapy for your allergy therapy. You're on vaccine therapy for your symptomatic control of your allergies. We're using, you know, Lokivetmab injections, for instance. You know, for your food, this is what we're doing. For your flea control, this is what we're doing. So they understand each thing and what it's really targeted for. So then they understand that each thing is important because it's really focused on a different aspect. of what we're doing, because we ask people to do a lot, you know. There's yes. no question, and and, it, and the more they understand, and the, you know, the better off they are. And I think the last thing is is really you've got to spend time. You know, you can't you can't impart that information to clients in a 15 minute no. office visit. Yeah. It's just one of those things that's critical. So you either have to have them back routinely or, you know, you have to be able to spend the time with them. You know, as a dermatologist, uh, my initial uh, visits are for an hour and it takes me that long to to be able to assess what's going on and to be able to talk about what we're going to do and set up a plan and send that home. And even revisits of 30 minutes, it just, it takes time to, to, to do that. And yeah. so I do think you have to be able to have that time to, to spend with clients uh, to yeah. be able to to give them that information.
0: Yeah. Um, well it's no wonder that you're um, you've been so successful because it sounds like a great model and Hopefully, um, general practitioners can start to make those longer appointments. I know a lot of places do do 30-minute appointments, but um, taking that, that hour for that first initial appointment, having time to do the um, you know, on-the-spot um, pathology tests that we can do in-house and all of that just while the client is there would be so beneficial. Yeah and
1: I think ultimately it you know it's it's a financial reward for the practitioner. I think the more the more you can convey to the client the more willing they are to do the things that you really need them to do and yeah. and ultimately at the end of the day I think that you know it, it it makes them more compliant. I think their success is going to be better and and they're going to you know, realize that.
0: Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, is there anything that you feel that you wanted to share that we haven't covered, um, or are you fairly happy with the discussion so far?
1: Oh, gosh. That's, uh, <laughs> I think if we can uh, accomplish that much and, uh, and, and, and kind of convey that, I, I think that's probably the most important thing that, yeah. you know, the vast majority of, of general practitioners are, are, are going to deal with. You know, there are so many other aspects of atopic dermatitis, which we didn't really touch on, like ear disease. Or yeah. ear issues. And yeah. that's an, again another whole podcast. Yeah,
0: good to have you back. <laughs>
1: series of these. Girl, that'd be great. Um, because there's so much of it that's involved
0: with uh, atopic dermatitis. Yeah, no, absolutely. It is um, the tip of the iceberg and it's it's just nice to have a really great overview. So thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest. We finally got there (laughs) and um, we'll we'll have to start scheduling the next one now. (laughs) 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 Um, That'd
1: be
0: awesome. So I really appreciate you um, giving up your time. I know it's getting late in the day there in California um, and we're just starting our friday here so have a lovely rest of your week and weekend and we'll speak to you again soon
1: great i look forward to it thank you
0: this is the pure animal podcast and i'm dr sarah howard if you enjoyed today's episode please feel free to jump onto itunes and rate and review us